morning, everyone. Happy Monday. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Missionary, right? St. Patrick was one who, who went to fulfill the Great Commission, going back to the people who once enslaved them, who once enslaved him, and made, brought the gospel, uh, helping many more people know Jesus. So uh, it's not about all the green stuff, and it's not about the snakes. St. Patrick's Day is about Jesus, and so is chapel. So we're going through the I am statements of Jesus, and uh, today we are looking at a self-standing one from John chapter 15. Uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. To understand this one, let's back up a little bit and learn a little bit about grapes. That's not a grape vine in the way that Jesus uses the language when he says, I am the vine. All right, uh, we'd call that a vine. Uh, Jesus, Greek, would call that a branch. That's a branch, not a vine. For those of you who like Pinterest, that is not a grapevine. That is a dried-up bundle of grape branches. That is a field of grapevines. The vine is the part that stays. The branches grow for a season and then are cut off, pruned away burned up, and only the vine remains. My father-in-law, when he was still with us, raised grapes for many years, and he would call those actually stumps. The grape stumps, to distinguish them from the vines that were growing there. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And if you find a vine today, you'll find one that's bursting with new life, and a lot of interesting things happen. Now, when we talk about vines... Look through the Bible, you'll see this is one of the largest motifs, one of the biggest images in Scripture. A grand total of 54 biblical books use the language of the vineyard. Every single book in the Old Testament talks about grapes and vines and things like this. All but uh, all 15 books in the New Testament use the imagery, but when you count authors, only two biblical authors in the whole book don't use this imagery. Jude whose book is so short there's no time for it, and Hebrews, which is actually kind of interesting. Hebrews doesn't have it. Everyone else has this. From Genesis to Revelation, a vine winds its way through all of Scripture, and we see its biggest example, its most important center, in John chapter 15. But when a Jew heard Jesus talking, their first thought probably wasn't to go outside and look at the vines, their thought was going back to Scripture. So before we get to John, let's take a look at Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5 is one of the most significant vine stories in the Old Testament. A story in which Israel is the vine. So let's read. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. 
For the vineyard of the house of the Lord of hosts, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. If you're going to plant a vineyard, you're making a commitment. First year you plant your vines, you're going to harvest nothing. The second year you plant your vines, you're going to harvest nothing, unless you cheat. If you cheat and buy plants that were growing somewhere else, you've really bought time in another vineyard. But if you're growing them from scratch, year two, nothing. Year three, not much. Year 50, year 90, year 200, you might have some remarkable fruit. But in those first few years, hardly anything. If you've been paying attention to the news, you know that many farmers in this wonderful state are rather paranoid about their crops right now. Anybody who's planted a crop that needs to grow over years, like grapevines, like fruit trees, anything that's not planted with seed in the spring and harvested is in danger because the state has said you get no water this year. Millions and millions of dollars are on the line. My own family has an orchard that's in a little bit of trouble right now, so they just dug a new well so that the state can't stop them from keeping their livelihood going. Thank God for that. It's a blessing. If you're going to build a vineyard, grow a vineyard, you commit to it, and it's not just planting the vines. You do, as Isaiah was saying, you build a wall around it because vineyards like to attract people who want to get some grapes for themselves. Some things on four legs and some things even worse on two that like helping themselves to someone else's produce. You build it up, you take care of it, you nourish it. And what happens when you don't get what you desire from it? When you go to look for those sweet grapes and you find worthless fruit. This is what God sees when he sees Israel. I put all of this effort, all of this love into you. I built you up to be the people that I want. I planted you right where I wanted you to be. I nourished you. I protected you. I invested in you. And when I went to look for fruit in the lives of my people, what do I see? Garbage. Worthless fruit. Worthless fruit. That's the backdrop for John chapter 15. But we're going to take just a couple of quick examples so that you see there's other places. Jeremiah 2, verse 21 God says, I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How have you turned degenerate into a wild vine? Ezekiel has a lot of stuff on this. Chapters 15, 17, and 19 compare Israel and Jerusalem to a vine and not favorably. Worthless, withering, fruitless vines. Psalm 80 is a prayer. It talks of how God brought Israel out of Egypt as a vine and transplanted it into a new good vineyard. The vine was Israel and it prospered until its fruit was bad and God had torn down the walls of his vineyard. The psalm pleads with God to remember his people, to remember his vineyard and to restore Israel to the way that they once were, to a faithful people. 
all throughout scripture, a story of the vineyard is the story of God's people. And so it's no surprise that Jesus picks up the story. If you haven't been following along, you might want to open your Bibles to John 15. We'll put this on the screen as we go. We're going to walk through this main section uh, a verse or two at a time and see what's going on here. John chapter 15. It's a standalone section. It doesn't really connect uh, textually to the ones around it. It's just Jesus teaches this at some point in his ministry. And he starts off with the words that are the focus of our Monday study in Lent. Jesus says, I am. Ego eimi. Words, again, that Jews would have understood to be a claim to deity. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Not just any vine, but the true vine. Israel might have prickled at that a little bit. We're the vine. We're the ones that scripture was talking about, but Jesus says, I'm the one. I'm the one who stands in your place. I'm the one who's fruitful. I'm the one who's faithful. I'm the one who's restoring you. I'm the true vine. My father, he's the farmer, the vine dresser, the one who tends the vineyard, also the one who planted it in the first place. Open metaphor going on here. Now, Jesus keeps going. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Branches, the part that grows on that vine, the part that's there for a season, need to be pruned, because if you leave a plant to its own devices, it will grow lots of pretty foliage. The leaves will be wonderful. The branches will spread. It'll take up as much space as it can. And the fruit will be almost non-existent. Because it'll put all of its energy into lengthening those lines and making itself something greater. And that might be fine if simply the survival of the vine is what you're after. But it's not when you plant grapes. You want grapes. And to get those, you have to cut back that growth. You have to cut off the branches that aren't producing fruit. You have to pull back on the the leaves at certain points so that enough sunlight gets to the fruit, so you can see it, so it ripens, so it gets wonderful. If you don't prune, the results are not going to satisfy. And they all knew it. In fact, I suspect Jesus was probably in the midst of vineyards as he was talking about this, and he could show them right there that vines were, in fact, pruned in order to get fruit. Every branch that doesn't bear fruit, Jesus says, gets taken away. It gets cut off because it's not producing. And every other branch prunes to make better fruit. Basic farming. But then he turns to us. And in English, well, translators don't have the guts to say what's really there. Look at that verse 3. Does it really follow from the verse that went before it? Every branch is pruned and you are clean. You are pruned. Pruning and cleaning are the same word in Greek. You clean up the vine when you prune off the branches that don't belong. You prune 
people through repentance, through faith, through what Jesus does for them. You have already been pruned. You have already been put in a place where you can be fruitful, where Jesus' word will do what it wants to in you. And so Jesus goes on. Now that you're pruned, here's our life. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Cut off a branch and it's going to wither and die. If you want fruit, you have to leave it attached to the source of its nourishment, to the vine, to the endless thing. Abide in that vine. Jesus says, I am, and there's those words again, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. There's Jesus' description of the Christian life. If we stay in him, if we're connected to him, if he's in us, God is going to make things happen. He's not saying, branches, you work harder, you do more things. If you don't do these things, I'm going to cut you off. He says, stay with me, and it'll happen. Your life flows from Jesus. The things that God places in our life, the opportunities for us to bless others, happen. Now, I'm not saying we should never pay attention and ask, what would God have me do today, or how should I respond to this situation? But sometimes we get so fixated on what we're doing that we lose sight of the fact that our life is what God is doing. God is working in you. The fruit that he brings in your life flows from the faith that he's put in you, the faith that was a gift of his spirit. The way that we respond to his grace often is the most natural thing in the world. Those of you who are in my afternoon class, I apologize, you heard this story last week in a little bit different context. In my uh, first congregation, I was once in a Bible study that I didn't write. It was a special occasion, and they said, please, pastor, can we use this study? And I'd normally do my own stuff, and this was one of those times I should have, because there were some shaky questions in it and some other things. And one of the questions was about Christian fruit, And it asked people to reflect on their lives and say, what have you been doing for God this week? And that's not a bad thing to reflect on in a way, but usually it means I've taken my attention off him and put it onto me. And it can become egocentric and boastful. But the study went to one of the women in the the group, and, and they asked, well, what have you been doing for the Lord, Betty? And her answer was, nothing. I've I can't answer this question. I don't do anything. And the group was gasping in disbelief. Because this is a a true saint of the Lord, a real godly woman, active and dedicated. And so they started rehearsing for her a list of things they had seen that week. She had been in hospitals visiting members of the congregation who were ill. And they said, what about that? She says, "That's, that's not doing any good works. I just simply went to the hospital because there were people who were sick and wouldn't we all want to be visited like that? Okay, Betty, how about those grandchildren of yours? Where do they go after school? Well, they come over to my house. Yeah, every day? Uh Uh-huh. 
and you take care of them. Yeah? You know that's not normal, right? Why do you do that? Oh, it's because they're my grandchildren. It's not anything special. I don't do it. Everything people threw at her, she deflected as if it wasn't anything at all. Now, she was a little overly humble, not recognizing what God was doing, but in a way, she was acting like the vine, the, a branch that's connected to the vine. She was bearing fruit simply by being who God had made her to be. And her attention wasn't on the wonderful fruit she was producing in her life. She didn't recognize it because she was looking at the people that she was serving. And it gave her great joy. Remain in me, bear much fruit. Then Jesus continues with a warning and a promise. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Cut ourselves off from Christ. We're firewood. We're worthless. There's no life in us. So don't. Verse 7, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. When we're remaining in Jesus... We're remaining in prayer. and God hears. God blesses us. And he keeps going. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. The farmer wants fruit. Eight times in these eight verses, we've heard that. Verse 2, three times he talked about wanting fruit. Verse 4, twice he talks about fruit. Verse 5, verse 8, and one time, actually, seven times in these verses, one more right afterwards. Uh, one more in verse 16. He wants fruit to come from us. And as he talks about what we're doing, we see a progression. What does God want from you? Verse 2, bear fruit. Verse 2, a little bit later, be more fruitful bear more fruit and in verses 5 and 8 bear much fruit see God's got a plan for you you are the way that God gets his work done in the lives the relationships that you're in you are one of the masks of God where he comes into the midst of people's lives to bless to comfort to heal to love you're one of God's chief instruments in doing that. So remain in Jesus. Forgiven, pruned of the sins that had so easily gotten in the way, remain in Jesus to bear much fruit. So what is it? Verses 9 through 11. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Stay in the vine where you're loved and where you, in return, love others. Jesus is the great I am. He is the vine. We're the branches. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the life that we have in you. Graft us into you, Savior. Hold us ever close to you. Fill us with your life. And grant, Lord, that we may bear much fruit to the glory of your name and be a blessing to others. Amen.